It's a long passage. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 19. So we're going to go to the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. And uh, you get past the first five books, the Torah, and you start going through the history, Joshua, Judges, and uh, keep going, and you'll get to Kings, and we'll be in chapter 19. And see, I just keep talking so you have time to find it and get there. But it's a longer uh, passage, so we're going to, in the interest of time, sort of go through it as we go through uh, the sermon. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we always need it. We need to know the promise of your presence. We need to know that we're never alone, that we're never abandoned, that we're never forsaken. We know that when we're discouraged and downcast, we often can't trust ourselves. So lead us to trust you, lead us to hear you, and lead us to simply be with you. Give us rest for our souls and forgiveness for our sins. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. A few years ago, in an article in the Atlantic magazine, uh, author Scott Stossel shares openly about his lifelong attempts to deal with the anguish of anxiety and depression. From an early age, he's been what he calls a twitchy bundle of phobias, fears, and neuroses. He writes, even when not actively afflicted by acute episodes of anxiety and depression, I am buffeted by worry. And he adds, here's what I've tried to deal with my anxiety and depression. Individual psychotherapy, three decades. Family therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, hypnosis, meditation, role-playing, introceptive exposure therapy, in vivo exposure therapy, self-help workbooks, massage therapy, prayer, acupuncture, yoga, stoic philosophy, and some audio tapes I ordered off a late night TV infomercial. <laughs> and his medications, lots of medications. Thorazine, Impramine, Despramine, Chlorpheniramine, Nardole, Boost Bar, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Welbuterin, Effexor, Selexa, Lexapro, Cymbalta, Luvox, Trazodone, Lavoxyl, Indorol, Transine, Serac, Centrac, St. John's Wort, Zolpidem, Valium, Librium, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin. Also beer, wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, and scotch. <laughs> And he writes, here's what worked, nothing. Now, before anyone gets bent out of shape, I'm not sharing this to say that either therapy or medication are bad. In fact, I believe just the opposite. They certainly have their place, and they're very effective for some people, but not all people. And what works for one person may not work for another person. In fact, I would ask you to be very cautious about assuming or projecting your experience onto other people. Because by saying, 
this worked for me, you should try that, runs the very high risk of them trying that and having it not work, which serves to make their depression even worse. And so I want you to hear me carefully. I am saying there's rarely just one cause for depression. There's rarely just one effect or symptom of depression. And there's rarely just one treatment as well. Depression is a multi-pronged monster that has many causes, many effects, many symptoms, and many treatments. Now, the most common objection to that kind of statement, and sometimes from Christians, is that depression is simply a physical disease that requires medical treatment. And you may think that, but please don't tell me. I won't call you an idiot. The second most common objection is the, just the opposite view, um, that depression is not physical at all and should never be treated with medication. And once again, you may think that, and once again, please don't tell me, and once again, I won't call you an idiot. In reality, depression has physical causes, situational causes, things like tragedies and traumas that may or may not be physical, emotional, psychological causes, and spiritual causes. Now, I know there are many people here today in this room who struggle with the issue of depression, including myself. And if you're not one of those folks, then you probably have been in the past or will be in the future. This trouble is so common that it is the rare person who doesn't have to face it over the course of a lifetime. Most people have to face it multiple times, and some people face it on a regular basis. Depression is a monster that hides in the darkness, preying on individuals who, for the most part, suffer in silence. Yet at least 18% of the U.S. general population is battling this brute on a daily basis. Major depression disorder is the leading cause of disability in adults under 40, terrorizing more than 16 million people in the United States alone. Estimates run as high as 150 million people worldwide. Our young people in particular are haunted here. Deaths caused by this monster are the third leading cause of death for our youth. Everything points to the fact that this monster is growing stronger and is terrorizing more and more people. Between 2010 and 2015, the number of teenagers who are locked in a battle with depression surged by 33%, and that's just the ones we know about. Hospitalizations due to suicide attempts have doubled, and at least 62% of college freshmen report being overwhelmed by depression for at least a week or more. That's almost two-thirds of all college freshmen. That's up from half in 2011. And like Scott Stossel, we have to recognize that times of depression can be crippling, produces deep pain, feelings of powerlessness, and what the psychologists call a self-referential mindset. What that means is that all issues, even other people's issues, are only understood in reference to yourself. For example, you tell me your problem, and my immediate thought is, how does your problem affect me? And I don't seem to be very concerned about how your problem affects you. 
people who suffer from severe clinical depression have great difficulty seeing issues, any issues, in any other way. So why are we taking these issues on? Well, first of all, I believe the prevalence of these issues in our culture demands the church to speak, speak to this issue with clarity and compassion. Second, I think we still have time before it gets to be such a critical mass that we've lost our ability to deal with it. In other words, I think it's going to get worse, a lot worse, but there's still time to address it and help people before they get to a place that's beyond repair. And third, I think the scriptures speak to the realities of depression with great force, that God has not left us to deal with this alone. He provides wisdom in caring for ourselves and others who suffer in this way, and he promises to meet us with kindness and gentleness in times of utter darkness. When our situation or circumstances get difficult, it's easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking, it's just me. Why am I the only one suffering with this? None of these other people seem to be suffering with this. Lord, why me? That question's been around for thousands of years. And yet we still ask it a lot. But still, it seems the clear teaching of the Bible is that all sorts of troubles, all sorts of suffering is common to man. We all experience it. And sometimes it's physical, and sometimes it's emotional, and sometimes it's spiritual. But usually, it's all three. And that's why we're starting this new series uh, that Kirk mentioned to you earlier, The Time of Trouble. I know that sounds depressing. But rest assured, short series. So we're going to look at a few things common to most people. But in so doing, we're going to be looking at individuals who've met God in a particularly meaningful way, who've actually come into the presence of God. Christian faith is built on presence whether in the pillar of fire or the still small voice or the incarnate son, God has been Emmanuel with us. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. And the Bible teaches us through biography. For the most part, the Bible doesn't teach us through essays or lectures. It teaches us through stories about people. And when it comes to life, we get a lot more involved with stories. We remember them. They're more interesting. And the Old Testament in particular is mostly stories of real people pointing to the fact that when God decided to send salvation, he didn't send an argument, and he didn't send abstract principles, he sent a person. And so this week we're going to look at one of those stories. We're going to look at a man who thought, it's just me, the prophet Elijah. He has an insightful dialogue with the Lord. In 1 Kings 19, our passage today, where he complains and questions God about his desperate situation. He's coming off a literal mountaintop experience, and the prophet falls into a season of spiritual depression. In order for us to better understand the passage, it would be helpful to look at his structure. I have a slide uh, for that. That's wonderful. I have my magic laser pointer. So 1 Kings 19 has what Old Testament scholars call a chiasm or a chiastic structure. It means it's shaped like an X, and you can see sort of half the X here. Um, it's actually way more complex than that, but 
that'll work for our purposes. It's a very common feature in Hebrew writing. Many of the Psalms have this main structure. And so you can see Elisha flees, and you come down here, Elisha returns. Renewal, renewal, God asks, God asks, Elisha's told what to do. And what this means is, unlike Greek and most of the New Testament, the main point comes at the end. You think about Paul's writings that build to a conclusion. Um, Hebrew writing locates the main point in the middle, showing how events build to the main point and then events change or respond to the main point. So here's the middle. The presence of God is the main point. I'm giving away the main point right up front. And we'll see how this passage builds up to the main point, which is the presence of God. And so we read this morning this story of Elijah's great depression after his incredible victory on Mount Carmel. And so we can probably leave that up just for a while. Here is one of God's most prominent prophets, subject to a darkness that lasts for several weeks. For 40 days, he stays in the darkness of a cave. I think some of us can relate to that, to that feeling of despair and wanting to stay in the darkness of our room for days on end. And stories like Elijah's tell us that God knows our struggles. And I think it's, it's amazing that he leaves these stories in Scripture to teach us that while darkness is a reality, he is present there to meet us and to minister to us. And if the darkness of depression is a reality for Elijah, it can certainly be a reality for us. It's something we have to come to terms with, and I think Americans in particular are particularly naive about this. The noted author, Joshua Wolf Schenck, he wrote an amazing book about Lincoln's melancholy. I'll let you look it up. But he says that anything less than constant cheer is a violation of the American religion. He's not talking about a particular religion. He's saying that Americans worship happiness. And that fits with the story, actually. We expect happiness. In 1 Kings 18, we've just had one of the most dramatic, most spectacular events in the entire Bible. Elijah has just confronted 450 false prophets of Baal in this dramatic contest to bring fire from heaven. And the false prophets fail miserably, and Elijah just trash talks them. You know, they're praying and dancing and jumping around, and Elijah's there. He can't hear you. Shout louder. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. You'll have to wait till he gets back. And it's just on and on. He taunts them all day long. You can read it. It's awesome. And then it's Elisha's turn, and he prays 30 seconds, fire rains down from heaven, disintegrates the offering, and the people kill all the false prophets. Elijah wins the day. Amazing story. Time for celebration. Elijah comes off the mountain and says, I'm going to Disney World. But he doesn't. And that's because right after this great victory, a messenger arrives. And he brings a message that fills the prophet Elijah 
a man of God, a man who's demonstrated the amazing power of God, and it fills them with total and So Elijah is filled with fear, and fear leads to flight. That's the first blank there in your outline. Fear leads to flight. Starting at verse 1. And you can sort of follow along as we go through and see how this plays out. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. The message comes from a woman we don't name our daughters after. The woman who killed the prophets of the northern kingdom, and essentially she says, you think I'm impressed by what you did yesterday? You think I'm impressed by the killing of my prophets, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of the God I want all Israel to worship? Well, by this time tomorrow, you're going to join them. But Elisha doesn't respond like we expect. He's just had this great victory. We expect him to say, oh yeah, bring it. Do you see the fire rain down from heaven? Come on, I'll wait. But it's not what he says. It's not what he does. Verse 3, then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life. What? He just faced down the 450 prophets of Baal. He faced down the king of Israel. My man Elijah doesn't get scared until he does. Why this? Why now? Because Elijah is afraid that God has abandoned him. Even worse, Elijah is afraid that God has abandoned Israel. He thought there'd be an immediate revival that everyone would see what happened and turn back to God, that the godless king and his Jezebel wife would be deposed. And then a messenger shows up with a message from Jezebel the Jezebel, we're still here and we're coming for you. This man longs for God to be glorified. He longs for his people to know the one true God. And when it doesn't happen, his world falls apart. What do you long for? Maybe you long for your spouse to like you. Well, they're still there and they say they love you, but you didn't know it would be like this. You just wish she liked me. What do you long for? Maybe you long for your child to know Christ. You did all the right things, but they've walked away. It wasn't supposed to be like this, and you just want them to come back. What do you long for? Maybe it was success or fame or a corner office but you're about to hit 50 and the 30-somethings are passing you by. It wasn't supposed to be like this. What do you long for? Elijah longed for his people to come back to God. He gave them an incredible demonstration of the power of God. How could they not repent? But they didn't. And so he ran. And he kept running until he could run no more, until he collapsed in exhaustion out in the wilderness, out in the desert, sitting under the only tree he could find. And that's where the Lord found him. 
And that's where we see fatigue confronted by grace. Fatigue, F-A-T-I-G-U-E. I know we have to spell some things for Frank. Princeton has its own dictionary. You can check with the people one on Majnik. There's a story there. Um, that was mean. <laughs> Fatigue confronted by grace. Need a lot of grace now. Verse 4. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And again, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horab, the mount of God. Well, a man can run a long way when he's running for his life. And Elijah ran all the way to Beersheba and then went another day's journey into the desert. If you look on a map, that's about 100 miles total. He's running out of Jezebel's kingdom from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah, where he thought he'd be safe. And he almost ran himself to death. And there he sits under a tree in utter despair. And he prayed. He's a man of prayer. So how's this for a prayer? Verse 4, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. In modern terms, Elijah's asking God to just take me now. And again, I think it's the integrity of the Bible to show us this, to tell us this, to let us know it's important to see this. There's a realism about the scriptures. And what do we see that God does? First thing we're told Uh, Verses 5 and 6, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again. The first thing that God does for Elijah, his depressed servant, is he does nothing. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't counsel him. Nothing. He sends an angel And the word angel means messenger. Jezebel sent a messenger of death. The Lord sends a messenger of life. And all this angel does is cook. It's amazing. He bakes a cake. It's angel food cake. (laughs) Seriously, you wonder where that term came from? Now you know. Second time, verse 7, makes him another meal. And all he says is, arise and eat, the journey is too great for you. No lectures, no counseling, no support groups, no therapy, no call to repent, nothing. You need a good meal. Get some sleep. You need some rest. And if all this sounds too simple, we need a heavy dose of reality. Salvation in Christ doesn't bring an end to life's troubles. In fact, for a lot of people, the troubles are just starting. Sometimes Christians have problems and get hurt. Sometimes they get discouraged and depressed. Sometimes they're afraid and run for their lives. And sometimes they quit in the middle of their jobs or abandon their calling. Sometimes they think about ending it all. And in this respect, what James said about Elijah in James 5 is true. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. When we see Elijah under the broom tree, 
We see what a man of God amounts to in his own strength. With the power of the Lord, Elijah's the bravest of men. He's like the Apostle Paul. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But without the power of the Lord, Elijah is powerless. He's a coward. As Winston Churchill famously said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Or to paraphrase 2 Corinthians 4, Elijah had his treasure in a jar of clay to show that this all-surpassing power was from God and not from himself. A long time ago, I heard Mark Driscoll use this phrase, bread truck Mondays, to describe the Monday blues. He reported that sometimes he dreams on Mondays about what he could do other than pastor, like driving a bread truck. He imagines the bliss of only being responsible for bread, not people. Bread doesn't commit adultery. Bread doesn't lie. Bread doesn't have unpredictable giving patterns. Bread doesn't gossip. He liked the idea of driving around, listening to ESPN radio, instead of enduring the mental strain that goes with pastoring. I never forgot that illustration because I've had my own bread truck Mondays. See, ministers identify with Elijah. We've all sat under a broom tree. Some of the greatest preachers and missionaries suffered from depression. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Luther, Mother Teresa. The list is endless. Off the top of my head, I can name four other pastors in the PCA who constantly battled depression. And I've known a few that took their own lives. And I've known a lot that discovered that for them, there was no angel food cake. And so they just quit in frustration. And that's how we next find Elijah, with his frustration, confronted by power, starting at verse 9. Frustration confronted by power. And this brings us to the center section of this text. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a strong and great wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. This is a great text. God sends Elijah to Mount Horeb otherwise known as Mount Sinai. This is the central location of Old Testament history. This is the mountain of God. This is the mountain of Moses. 
And Elijah goes there and he camps out in a cave in the darkness. All the action happens on the top of the mountain. But Elijah can't get there. Just can't get there. He stops and goes in a cave. And so God asks him a question, verse 9. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives him a terrible answer. It's filled with self-righteousness. I've been jealous for the Lord. It's filled with self-importance. I'm the only one left, Lord. It's just me. It's filled with self-pity. They seek my life. And in response, God commands him, verse 11, go out and stand. Get out of that stupid cave, Elijah, and see what happens on this mountain. Because while this is new for you, I have been here before. But Elijah stays put. And so God announces his presence in all the same ways he did for Moses. He sends the wind, it breaks the rocks before the Lord, just as the wind saved Moses in Exodus 10. Sends an earthquake, just as an earthquake announced his presence to Moses in Exodus 19. And he sends fire, the symbol of his presence, not just in Exodus 19, but also in the last chapter in 1 Kings 18. He uses the wind and the earthquake and the fire to demonstrate the great and awesome power of the Lord God Almighty. But he didn't come in those things. He came in the sound of a low whisper what other versions call a still, small voice or the sound of sheer silence. And God is in the whisper. And the whisper of God is so powerful, it forces Elijah, verse 13, to finally go out and stand. And with that reluctant obedience, God once again asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives him the exact same answer. But I think, and I'm speculating here, that now Elijah's answer is with the understanding that even if all this happens, even if the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away, even then, it'll be okay. Because I have been in the presence of the Lord. You know, I think one of the many sources of Elijah's depression was he forgot the meaning of his own name and the message he preached. He's forgotten God. Elijah's name means, my God is Lord. The Lord, he is God. And that's his message too, and he's forgotten it. And so this passage finishes with his forgetfulness confronted by hope. Verse 15, forgetfulness. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you will anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Very quickly, God gives Elijah a new assignment. You're going to anoint a new king and a new prophet. They'll continue the work. 
And God assures him he's not alone. He's not the only one left. There's still great hope for the people of Israel. He has 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. (coughs) This great work of calling the people back to me will be accomplished, but it will not be done by you, Elisha. It will be done by me. The Apostle Paul reminds us nothing's changed. Look at Romans 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know? Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Nothing's changed. God's still with you, but he's the one who gets the job done. Whether it's for the church, for all of Christianity around the world, or you and your life, Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for you? First of all, it means that you are not alone. There are a lot of people around the world right here in this church who suffer with the same things you do. Depression is common to man. It comes upon fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, doctors, lawyers, teachers, shopkeepers, executives, and yes, even pastors, all of whom struggle just like you. Second, your faith isn't broken. Church history is filled with faithful saints who walk through darkness. The Bible's full of examples, David, Jonah, Jeremiah, and John. They all face the darkness. And third, God is with you. God's presence is always before you. God didn't berate Elijah. He fed him. He spoke gently to him. He met him right in the middle of his struggles with grace and power and hope. And his offer to you is the same. And Jesus essentially makes the same offer. Matthew 11, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Maybe this was a hard sermon for you, and I'm not going to give you a big long list of things to do. There's a lot of those lists out there. I did post one of them. But I am going to encourage you, regardless of how you feel, to keep doing the ordinary things, the means of grace things. Let me encourage you to do what pilots have to learn to do, fly by instruments. When a pilot flies into a dark cloud and loses his points of reference, it becomes dangerous to trust his physical perception. He might feel like he's flying straight when he's actually descending toward the ground. So he has to learn to trust what the plane's instruments are telling him, not what his thoughts and feelings are telling him. His life depends on it. So fly according to the instruments of grace, God's word, prayer, the sacraments, not your perceptions of the world. Keep your habits of Bible reading or Bible listening, despite how Teflon-coated your soul might seem. You need worship and fellowship and service. It's important to maintain the spiritual routine. And don't keep secrets from those who are closest to you. They need to know. Many of them will prove mercifully 
patient, surprisingly hopeful, encouraging, and there'll be an occasional jerk. But at some point, and I don't know when, I have no idea, but you'll discover the rock under your feet will no longer feel like sand. There's a great scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, that I think captures this kind of friendship. Sam and Frodo are nearing the end of their journey to destroy the One Ring. And Frodo's exhausted, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, in every way, from this immense burden of carrying the ring all this way. And they're collapsed on the side of Mount Doom. And Sam asks Frodo, do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? Do you remember the taste of strawberries? And tragically, Frodo replies, no, Sam, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark with nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. And Sam responding, one of the great friends of cinematic history, says, and let us be rid of it once and for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And he picks him up and carries his friend and gets him to the place he needs to go. That's your job. You can't carry whatever this other person is struggling with, but you can carry them. You know, the neat part, the sort of the ending of the story. We know Elijah never really serves much as a prophet again. This is really the end of his prophetic ministry. He never comes back and has another big thing. But Elijah would stand on a mountain again. And he stands there with Moses. And we see it in the Gospels. This time it's not on Mount Horeb, it's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took up uh, Peter, James, and John, and they see Jesus talking with Elijah as the dazzling glory of Christ is unveiled for just a moment. And the voice from heaven, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. One day, Elijah gets to meet the Savior. He meets the prophet who was and is better than his fathers, the Savior who would save his people from their sins, God's grace to Elijah shows us the pattern of God's grace for us in Christ. In Christ, we find rest for our souls. In Christ, we receive living bread and living water. John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Christ, we find forgiveness for our sins without rebuke. Romans 8, 1. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we've had enough, Christ is more than enough. He has the same grace for us that God had for Elijah under the broom tree. He hears our prayers. He knows our discouragements. He knows our depression. Yet he loves us and is reaching out to touch us. He offers rest for our souls and forgiveness for our sins. He does not condemn us but promises to be more than enough for us now and for always. 
We can come to God no matter how depressed we are because in our darkest moment, please remember, he is not afraid of the dark. He is not afraid of the dark. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. I don't know if you've ever seen Scotty Smith's prayers. You can find them on the Gospel Coalition website, but about half of this I just took from him. Every now and then you meet someone who prays and you just think, that guy knows Jesus way better than I do. This is one of those kind of prayers. It's not mostly mine. Scotty's. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne of grace today on behalf of those who struggle with some degree of sadness, from mild melancholy to deep depression. Father of mercies, God of all comfort, teach us how to comfort our friends in the throes of dark feelings. Continue to free us from simplistic views of depression. David asked the right question in a season of duress, why, my soul, are you downcast? Indeed, Father, help us to understand the various reasons for a downcast, disturbed soul. For friends whose depression is spiritually generated, the pain of living with no sense of the wonders of your love, the riches of your grace, the peace of the gospel, Father, whether they're believers or not, draw them to yourself in fresh and healing ways. Reveal Jesus as merciful and mighty and full of compassion and kindness. Father, who friends... For friends who suffer from depression generated by physical or psychological reasons, lead them to the right kind of medical care and counsel. Give us wisdom and presence, grace and kindness to care for them. Father, help us steward our own downcastness. May our default mode of withdrawal and isolation be replaced with running to you and collapsing on Jesus. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have promised us your presence. We love the darkness, and sometimes we're afraid to open our eyes. And yet you are the light, and bring us into the light, and sometimes it hurts. Because at moments like that, we realize that we need you more than ever. We need you more than air. Without you, we are nothing and can do nothing. And if it takes depression or guilt or grief to help us see that, then help us endure seeing that. Thank you that in the midst of our darkest days, You're never afraid of the dark. With the psalmist, we proclaim you to be our Savior and our God. Our hope is always in you. Grant that we may live like people who trust in your presence. And so we ask these things in the compassionate name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.